I don't know, I don't have a good feeling for how long I, what I have to say will take. I'll try to adapt to the time allotted, but we'll see. Good to see you all this morning. Okay, we're ready. I gave this final session on the letter to the Colossians um, a strange title, and I don't know how I came up with it, actually. I, <clears throat> first century Facebook. Um, I don't really know anything about Facebook, which I'll talk about in a few minutes, but um, I don't know. It just, it just came to me, so we'll see. I'll get back to the title for today's lesson as we go along, but first I want to thank Peter, who I see is not here. I think he's teaching somewhere. Uh, for his teaching us for the past several months. While we might be amused by the repeated, repeated anchoring of what was taught back to the book of beginnings, Genesis, uh, I'll bet most of us will remember 126. This letter to the church at Colossae was written by the Apostle Paul to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters at Colossae. I don't know if you caught, that's just, that's the introductory words. The saints, that is, the faithful brothers and sisters at Colossae. The letter focused on correcting some wrong practices that were grounded in a wrong understanding of the status and work of Jesus Christ. Now we're separated from the church at Colossae by almost 2,000 years. But the remedy for their wrong practices and wrong understandings about being in Christ, the remedy is the same now as it was then. One of the commentators on this letter put it this way, and in the, the, the remedy was an intense focus on Christ as the foundation of the believer's existence. Jesus was indeed fully man and fully God. The heart of Paul's teaching in Colossians is in chapter 1, and really you can find the whole theme of that letter in terms of the doctrine in the letter, which has an outworking and application in the lives, in our lives. The whole heart of Paul's teaching is in chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. I wish I had the melody line. I don't, but it was probably a hymn in the early church, verses 15 through 20. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I wish I had the melody line. I don't. But you can see the repeat, really, it's not hyperbolic. All things, everything is held together by the work of the cross. And the focus of this letter was the deity and the victory and the lordship and our responses to Jesus Christ because of his deity and victory and lordship. This was a letter to a specific community of believers in a, at a specific point in history but all of it was inspired by God for our use and instruction and benefit. And I always, and you should always go back to what Paul wrote in second to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is, inspired, is breathed out, inspired by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Even final greetings. some background. I want to confess the struggle I've had. I've, Paul, uh, Peter asked me to teach probably a month ago or maybe six weeks ago. And I was reading and trying to think through what I needed to say. And 
really I had more of a struggle than I normally have in preparing to teach in knowing how to organize what to say about this passage. My struggle comes from a lot of sources, but it begins with the fact that I've been, that I have not been able to organize what I want to say and what I think God wants me to say. For, and for me, that's a problem. Uh, I like to have what I believe I should, uh, what I, at least I think, uh, would be an organized, logical, and thematic teaching. I'm not saying I always succeed in that. I don't. But a theme in an organization helps me say what I want to say and just kind of put it together in my own mind. And I've struggled with that with these 12 verses. Many thoughts have come to my mind, and I'm going to share some of them this morning, but forgive my lack of organization. What I want to do, rather than trying to use an outline, is to ask and answer a couple of questions. But before I do that, I want to provide some context for this letter. And then after we ask and answer those uh, questions, I hope uh, that I will be able to deal with the heart of this text, what I think is the heart of this text, the unmistakable but I be- and undeclared, really. You can't, it wasn't Paul saying this was the heart of this text, but I think it is the heart of this text from 7 to 18 in chapter 4. So with that confession of my inadequacy, uh, I want to provide some context for this letter. Paul is writing from prison in Rome. His three missionary journeys have been completed. He's delivered the gifts from the various churches in Macedonia and Asia to the needy church in Jerusalem, where he was falsely accused, arrested, and then languished, awaiting trial for a couple of years in Israel and Caesarea. He appealed to the emperor in Rome and then undertook that amazing voyage that resulted in shipwreck, resulted in being saved from drowning, and surviving the poisonous snake bite on Malta, and finally arriving in Rome. There's some lack of a full understanding as to whether he had been released for a time in Rome, but here Paul is writing, most scholars believe in about A.D. 62 to 64, sometime in that time, time range, at least three letters, maybe four letters, that appear to have been delivered by the same messenger at the same time to a small area in what is now Turkey, Ephesus, and then two letters delivered to Colossae, Colossians and Philemon. But there were, and there were also two other small cities um, that, with churches in them other than Ephesus and Colossae, namely Hierapolis and Laodicea. And these letters were to be read there as well. There's the, what many, there's dispute and debate about this. I'm not taking a position, but there may have been a fourth letter to the church at Laodicea. And you can see some evidence of that even in what we're, in our text this morning. These letters, certainly this letter to the church at Colossae was to be read in Hierapolis and Laodicea. So by way of context and background and from all we know, Paul had, well, really, he says it, and I think it's, I think it's chapter 2, verse 1. He had never been face-to-face with any of these people. In other words, he had never set foot in any of these churches by the Lycus River, in the Lycus River Valley, Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae. But it seems as though he knew them intimately. I hope you see that. He'd never seen them face to face. But the way he writes, he knows them. In an era in which we didn't have telephones, we didn't even have the um, uh, Pony Express. We certainly didn't have Facebook. It seems obvious that Paul had learned, probably from Epaphras, that some individuals or some person in Colossae had developed a following among those in the church and was offering teachings that would undermine the truth about Jesus Christ. And it was those erroneous teachings that Paul was 
writing to correct under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The teaching in the letter began with doctrine, and then it applied that doctrine to their lives together in Christ, in relationship. All of that has taken place, and my brother Peter has expounded on these truths for us over the past several months. And interestingly, when you go back and look at the outlines, and I remember most of them I were here, was here for the class, he used the word community a bunch of times in the title to his, his teaching. Now comes what the editors of the English Standard Version call final greetings. And I want to read the text. I'm going to probably read it twice, and you'll see why in a minute. So let's read the text, beginning with verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow, fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke the beloved physician greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Heavenly Father, may this word come alive to us so we don't just see it as some formal ending of a letter, but we see the heart of God expressed through Paul in these words. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The first question is, what are these final greetings telling us? What are they telling us? I'm curious, and I have, I think on your lesson sheet, this is audience participation time. Uh, I'm, I'm curious about what you think we have here in these final 12 verses of Paul's letter to the Colossians. So I want to ask for audience participation. And I'm going to read through the text one more time. And I want then to give you a little bit of time and also maybe to stir something up within you. I want to get some of your input in no more than three words. Remember, no more than three words. If you had to sum up what these 12 verses are about, what would you say? And I'm going to read it again. We don't have to have everybody, but some of you surely will come up with something by the Holy Spirit that these verses mean to you, okay? Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. 
Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Volunteers, three words. What are these final greetings telling us? Somebody. Yes. One more time. Commendation and connection. Deep brotherly love. Stay the course. I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Communion of saints. Yes. Encourage. Encourage gospel partners. Yes. Sharing God. Caring. Godly orders. Okay. All that's that's good stuff. The three words, and I didn't come up with any this morning as I was going through my notes. Again, I came up with three words, and they're not better, certainly not as good as many of those. Means of grace. And maybe that my three words kind of tell you where maybe we're going this morning. In this age of Twitter, Pinterest, LinkedIn, and whatever the newest social media invention may be, and I confess I am cyber illiterate when it comes to such inventions, I actually am on LinkedIn, but I have never said anything. (laughs) I get stuff, but I don't say anything. I don't even know I'm on it. But I sense that by using short, trite phrases and abbreviated words, we can easily lose a sense of genuine, honest communication. We don't have to, but we can. We live in a soundbite world. We live in a sloganeering society that can very easily water down the sincerity and purpose of the expression of our lives together. But I would contend that in these final greetings, we don't just have polite palaver. And I had to put a definition. That's a word that I use, but nobody seems to ever know what it means. (laughs) Palaver is prolonged and idle discussion. That's not what we have here. We don't just have some formulaic, socially acceptable words to end a letter. We have something I've labeled first century Facebook in its best sense. Now, let me be quick to add, as I think I've said already, I don't have a Facebook account. I take some unjustified pride in making that statement. (laughs) In fact, with that statement, I have to engage in a confession that those of you who know me can readily recognize. I confess that I have a tendency to be antisocial. And I say that seriously. Those of you who know me know I say that seriously. And that's not a good thing. I try to fight against that tendency and have all kinds of rationalizations to justify my tendency. So if you confront me, you'll probably have to endure some of those. But there you have it. Hopefully I've not offended you with my tendency, but I suspect I may have. And if I have, I welcome you to privately confront me with that offense, and I will do my best to address the manifestations of that tendency that have offended you in the future. Now that I have that out of the way, I also confess that when others who do participate in Facebook, and you might know that the person I'm talking about is Nancy, so I might as well admit it, and I will also add, though, quickly, Nancy is more of a peruser than a user of Facebook. Um, but, uh, you know, I, 
when they tell me, others who participate tell me about what they have learned about their friends in Facebook, I'm often blessed. I say that honestly, I'm often blessed. Now I'm sure that Facebook can be abused. But I, I got a sample of what had been posted on someone, Nancy's Facebook page just yesterday, and as I suspected, Facebook can be a means of testifying to God's work in the lives of saints and faithful brothers and sisters who have inhabited our lives. I would hope that if you participate in Facebook, you would do so in a way that glorifies God. Our Savior Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in your life and in the life of your family. Now, this would not mean only posting scripture, although that would be a blessing. This would mean not only posting deep theological insights, although again, that could be a blessing. This could simply mean sharing the struggles, needs, blessings, and thanksgivings that exist in your life with pictures often with those who love you. And I'm not condemning anyone's use of Facebook. How could I? I've never participated. But I suspect, as with any form of communication, Facebook could be used for other than the glory of God. I suspect that some of you who do participate have found that all who you call friend are not really. But 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul instructs, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Although certainly this letter to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters was and is the inspired word of God, this final little section at least was what I'm calling first century Facebook with no photographs attached. Now, that's not a theme for today's teaching, but I want to use it to illustrate what I think Paul was doing in this final greetings section of this letter. Actually, there's quite a bit in this letter that served those first century saints and faithful brothers and sisters by communicating the appreciation and care and love that Paul, who was one of them in the spirit, although he had never set foot in one of their homes, but he had love and care and concern and appreciation for them. We have such advanced tools to communicate today, care, appreciation, and love for one another, with one another. Facebook potentially being one of those tools. And we are challenged to use all the tools at our disposal to do that. The only other question that I want, I'm going to address before I get to the heart of what I think we should take from this passage. Um, the question is, who are these people? So let's look at who these people are. First Tychicus in verses 7 and 8. In verses 7 and 8, we learn quite a bit about Tychicus and his mission. He was the letter carrier for this letter. He was also the letter carrier for the letter to the Ephesians, we learn in Ephesians 6.21, and probably for the letter to Philemon, to the church, in the church at Colossae, verse 9 as well. Tychicus was with Paul on his third missionary journey, we find in Acts 20, verse 4. He may have been with Paul when Paul went back to Jerusalem after that journey. And we learn in Acts 20, verse 4, that he was from the province of Asia. And it is likely he was converted during Paul's lengthy ministry in Ephesus. Tychicus also shows up in Titus 3.12 as someone Paul may send to Titus on the island of Crete. He was a beloved brother, a faithful minister, a fellow servant in the Lord. And he was sent to Colossae to tell them all about Paul's activities and how Paul is doing and to encourage their hearts in verse 8. In a short word, Tychicus was not just a letter carrier. He was to function as Paul's representative and as an authorized interpreter of Paul's letter to these saints, these faithful brothers and sisters. He was beloved by Paul. He was a fellow slave with Paul in the Lord. He was a faithful minister, not just a news reporter, but a comforter as well. One commentator on verse 8 gives us some additional insight into what was going on with this letter and this part of this letter. 
and with other of the letters of the New Testament that were circulated to be read by saints and faithful brothers and sisters in the church communities. He wrote it this way, Not only does this point to his, Paul's, own apostolic authority in sending out messengers to the different churches, but it also testifies to the beginning of a social network that connects local churches through letters and emissaries. That sounds like first century Facebook to me. <laughs> then we have Onesimus, our old friend Moose, in verse 9. If you weren't here for the teaching on Philemon, you'd have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> and, but this is what tells us that Tychicus was also the letter carrier to Philemon. Paul sent Onesimus with Tychicus to be reconciled to Philemon, the master that Onesimus had deserted, probably stolen from him as well, who was the principal subject of Paul's plea in the personal letter to Philemon. And what does Paul here tell us about Moose? That he's a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. In other words, Onesimus, the slave, is a native of Colossae and a brother in the Lord. Paul's word in verse 9 to the whole body of saints and faithful brothers and sisters at Colossae is for the same purpose as the little letter to Philemon, to ensure that Moose receives a proper reception back into the household of Philemon and into the household of God that meets probably in his home. Don't overlook that last little inclusion of Onesimus. Every word in Scripture very often can tell us something, and I'm not I can't possibly exhaust all that these words tell us today, but don't overlook that last little inclusion of Onesimus with Tychicus at the end of verse 9. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. This includes Onesimus as one of Paul's emissaries to the church. Having introduced the em his emissaries, Paul now sends greetings from Rome and from three Messianic Jews, Aristarchus, John Mark, and Jesus called Justice, and from three Gentile believers, Epaphras, Luke, the physician, and Demas. First Aristarchus in verse 10. Acts chapter 27 verse 2, Aristarchus is called a Macedonian from Thessalonica. So we see, we're beginning to see geographic diversity, racial diversity, Religious background diversity. Social status diversity. In these final greetings. Acts chapter 27 tells us that Aristarchus was one of Paul's travel companions on his thir third missionary journey. Aristarchus had been with Paul during the riot in Ephesus that's recorded in Acts 19. And in Philemon... Aristarchus was called a fellow soldier with Paul. Here he's called a fellow prisoner with Paul. He was both. Then we have Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, in verse 10. And I think most of us know the story of John Mark. Mark and Paul had been through some difficulties together, as you may remember. They had conflict in their personal history. He was first identified in a believer's meeting in Jerusalem in the house of his mother in Acts chapter 12, verse 2, verse 12 rather. He accompanied Paul and Barnabas to Antioch, and then he went with them at the beginning of Paul's first missionary journey. But you may recall he left them in Pamphylia, we're told in Acts 15, 38. And as a result, Paul refused to take him along on the second missionary journey, which caused a sharp disagreement between Paul and his good friend Barnabas, causing old friends Paul and Barnabas to separate for a time. We also learn of the reconciliation between Paul and Mark. In this letter, there's evidence of that by Paul's descriptions, by the fact John Mark's with him in Rome and in Philemon. And we see in 2 Timothy 4.11, that Paul found Mark to be helpful to him in the ministry. Isn't it good to see that even the writers of the New Testament Scripture were human beings with disputes and arguments? Seriously. But you know what? It's even better to see that they could be reconciled 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can as well. And here Paul is telling them that Mark may make a visit to them in the future, and if he does make such a visit, they are to welcome him. Then we have Jesus called Justice. Boy, I'm tempted to step aside here. Do you, if you were in the I will. I'm going to take a little rabbit trail. The bonus round in Philemon, when we studied right at the end, and I challenged you all to identify those you may, friends and brothers and sisters, people you had, other Christians that you have discarded. You remember? By discarded, I mean you've mentally written off that relationship for whatever reason there might be. And I ask you to make a list, write it down, and leave room in the names on your list. And in the space, write down the reason why you've discarded. And then we went through that. And then I ask you to see what God wanted you to do about that. Well, Mark is a good example for us. The relationship between himself and Paul had been stretched. Mark had been discarded. But they'd been reconciled. Off that rabbit trail. Then we have in verse 11, Jesus called justice. Jesus is the Greek Greek form of the common Jewish name Joshua. And it was a very common name in New Testament time, and that's probably why he was given the additional Roman name, Justice, to accompany him, to distinguish him, rather. This Roman name, Justice, meant law-abiding. This is all we know about him, except that he was with Paul in Rome. You say, well, we don't, we don't told anything about him. Well, wait, there's information here about him. He was with Paul in Rome. He was a fellow laborer. He, along with Aristarchus and Mark, was Jewish of the circumcision. And he also was a fellow worker with Paul for the kingdom of God. And he was also a comfort to Paul. Jesus called justice was sending along his greetings to them from Rome. So we learn a little bit about him here. That's all we know. Not anywhere else in the New Testament that we know of. Take note here. We see greetings to and from and on behalf of slaves and Jews and Gentiles and those from Jerusalem and from Ephesus and from Colossae and from Thessalonica. And that's just so far. Consider what that should communicate to us. Epaphras, verses 12 and 13. Epaphras, we learn from this passage and others, was a native of Colossae. He had already been introduced in chapter 1. He probably founded the church and had likely discipled most of those to whom this letter was written. He was the source of the information that led Paul by the Holy Spirit to write this letter. He labored for them, even when he was in Rome with Paul, in prayer, fervent prayer, that they might grow to full maturity in Christ for God's glory. One translation of verse 12 describes Epaphras' prayer this way. Great, great description of his prayer. He prays hard for you all the time. He prays hard for you all the time. <laughs> Let that sink in about what relationship and communication and communion and community in Christ means. Epaphras was a servant, a slave with Paul in Christ Jesus. The labor in verses 12 and 13 describes prayer, fervent prayer, and more than prayer. Note the mention of the neighboring towns of Hierapolis and Laodicea. Epaphras' ministry was to this whole region. Epaphras was the man used by God to spread the gospel in the area of Colossae. Then we have Luke, the beloved physician, verse 14. And if you've ever wondered why the writer of Luke and Acts was known as a physician, here's the best evidence we have. Some have analyzed the way he writes in Acts and in the Gospel of Luke about healings, and he describes physical conditions in technical terms and, you know, and identify him as a physician in that way. But here we have a clear statement. Luke was a companion of Paul throughout most of Paul's ministry. And here we find him at Paul's side in Roman imprisonment, probably not as a prisoner, there voluntarily, but there to serve Paul and the purposes of God. Greetings from Luke in Rome. Demas. Demas is mentioned three times in the New Testament, including this time. He's mentioned each time, 
with Luke. And we learn in the last reference to Demas, which the latest writing of Paul that referenced Demas, which in 2 Timothy 4.10, that, and I'm quoting it, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. We don't know exactly what this looked like, this desertion. But since Paul wrote 2 Timothy from prison in Rome shortly before he was executed, it's suggested that Demas couldn't take the suffering that accompanied Paul in those difficult days. Why is this deserter even mentioned in this letter? You know, why does he take up pages of Scripture? He's a deserter. Just say he's a deserter. Enough. What occurred to me, if this letter was not the work of the Holy Spirit preserved for you and me down to this day and time through the centuries, if it was not the inspired word of God, true to the original, Demas would not be mentioned here. In other words, if this was some writer later in history trying to make Christianity look good, why include Demas? Demas is here preserved for us as an example. In this Christian community that we are part of, there are some who will fail. Let's love them all. Leave the judging to the only true judge. Brothers in Laodicea, verses 15 and 16, brothers in Laodicea to Nympha, the church in her house. Greetings continue, and this time greetings to still other people who call themselves by the name of Christ. Paul is greeting folks beyond the church that gathers in Colossae. Again, this points to the connection and the unity among the brothers and sisters in the various local communities, none of whom Paul has ever seen face to face. We find in Colossians 2.1. And then he tells them to read their letters to each other. Do you begin to see the first century Facebook nature of this letter? As well as all of Paul's letters. These letters were for public reading, and they were the purpose of knitting these groups of believers together in times that were increasingly difficult in the church. Paul was very aware of the need for the church of Jesus Christ to realize more fully the truth that they were all in this together. This demanded communication that would result in communion with one another. Verse 17, Archippus the final note before Paul signs his own name to this letter, is a strong, perhaps you could call it even a stern warning or encouragement to Archippus to complete the ministry that he had received in the Lord. In Philemon verse 2, Archippus was described as Paul's fellow soldier or beloved fellow worker, depending on the translation. He apparently belonged to the household of Philemon which may have been where Colossian church, the Colossian church community met. We don't know exactly what Archippus' ministry consisted of. But he knew what it consisted of. He knew what he'd been called to. And doubtless, the other recipients of that and hearers of this letter knew what that ministry consisted of. I'm certain that it included the Christ-centered truth-telling that Paul had so ably written to these saints and faithful brothers and sisters in this letter. Finally, there is Paul. Verse 18. Paul personally says, now, we could obviously go on and on about Paul. Read the book of Acts. Read all of his letters. And letters of other New Testament writers as well. Paul personally says to them here, and he says to us, by the Holy Spirit, greetings. Won't it be... A wonderful day when we can reciprocate greetings brother Paul and it's all by God's amazing grace that is with us as well Paul as we all must learn to humble ourselves to do and as we are all at least I am very hesitant in our pride to do Paul asks for personal prayer. He doesn't hide his need. He says, remember my chains. I don't think Paul was asking for sympathy. He wanted them to know his condition. And that's why he sent, 
One of the reasons he sent this letter and why he sent his emissaries, he wanted them to learn about him, what was going on with him. But this request was for strength to endure and serve our Lord. So again, and now to try to get to the heart, if I haven't run out of time, which I have, but I'm going to extend the time. What are these final greetings telling us? It's a question I started with, a question some of you answered in three words. Here's where I have so much to say, and I've had a great deal of difficulty figuring out how to organize it. I think this is why, Paul, why Peter asked me to teach this passage, <laughs> to make it difficult. No, because he knew I, I do have a passion for this subject. Uh, and so I have a difficult time figuring out how to organize my thoughts. So I've tried to organize it roughly using three words that Peter began last week's lesson with. But I, I'll put them in a reverse order. Communication equals communion equals community. And I want to say some things about these three C words in no particular organized way. The Holy Spirit's communication with us in these final 12 verses of a letter that focused on Christ and his relationship in community with the Father by the Holy Spirit to show us a, is to, was to show us a diverse set of individuals from varying backgrounds and races of people who serve us as living examples of the unity and community of the Godhead that we might image. 126. Paul described this truth in his second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 3, verse 3. You show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered to us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. We are, as one translation put it, living epistles. In these final greetings, the saints and faithful brothers insist to the Faithful brothers and sisters at Colossae and here, we are shown, they were shown and we are shown the lives of other faithful servants of God who served as the living voice illustrating the centrality of Christ and whose lives testified to the gospel of Christ. The final greeting points to the mutual dependence of believers as they ultimately find rest and comfort in their dependence on Christ. One commentator writing on this theme put it this way, In this closing section, therefore, acts of greetings point to the interdependence of believers, insufficient in themselves as the body of Christ. They become holy without blemish and blameless before him, that is, before Christ, because of the reconciliation in Christ's own body. In the mutual greetings, therefore, human insufficiency is acknowledged alongside the all-sufficiency of Christ. Do you see the role that communications of affection, approval, approbation, co-laboring in difficulties and joys, evidences about God's person's God shows us clearly that he dearly loves working together to show his glory to all creation and in all creation. And God communicates with us about his priority for expressing affection, approval, approbation, and even correction and discipline. Can we see that? An author writing about John Calvin's theology of the Psalms, quoting from Calvin in part, put it this way, and I love this picture that this paints. Although the whole world is the theater of God's kindness, wisdom, justice, and power, Calvin mentions that in this theater, the church is actually the part that illustrates it best, like an orchestra. The church is thus elected by God to be the theater of his fatherly care. Faithful and regular horizontal communication in the church, communications between and among faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, will lead invariably to deeper communion. And I was thinking about, as I was thinking about this and my own personal experiences over the years, 
The deepest communion I've had with others resulted from walking with them through trials and troubles. Connections are made in those times that are enduring, and they're supposed to be. There's a, there's a lesson here. When we refuse or neglect out of embarrassment or pride to communicate our deepest struggles with other believers, we neglect the creation of the communion that God wants us to have with one another in Christ to demonstrate his very glory. In a sermon on Psalm 36.6, Spurgeon spoke about the effect of enduring God's discipline or judgments and the trials and the effect that endurance of God's judgment has on a believer's communion with God. And there's a picture in here of our communion with each other as well. He said, lastly, if God's judgments are a great deep, now let me translate Spurgeon for you, a great deep, he was talking about oceans with depth, going across the Atlantic, going across the Pacific, going across the Indian Ocean. That's what he was talking about when he said deep. If God's judgments are a great deep, then they become a highway of communion with himself. May God's deep judgments, trials, lead you to deeper communion. The same is true in our relationships with one another. If we endure trials together, even conflicts with one another, and we do so in Christ, then our communion will be deeper with one another. None of this is possible except in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that brings me to community. And by community, I don't mean some vague ephemeral, you know, oh, community is wonderful. One writer I looked at said the new word in Christian parlance is community, but it's used in some abstract way. By community, I mean the church community that we are actually part of here and now. For you all who are in this room, it's Lakeview Christian Center. And I'm not making Lakeview Christian Center the be-all and end-all. I'm just saying that's the, it's that kind of real community that's being talked about here. In his classic Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote these simple but profound words that I've quoted, I think, to you before. But... Christianity means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. No Christian community is more or less than this. We belong to one another only through and in Jesus Christ. To see everything correctly, we first need Jesus Christ. Christ remakes us from the devastation that began with Adam's fall. In Christ, we are reconciled again to God and again reconciled to each other. The community between God and his people has been restored at and by the cross. And that has real, real, not just possible, but real consequences for our relationships with each other in community. Sometimes we act as if that's only a possibility but not a reality. Please don't buy into that myth. That denies every description of the church in the New Testament. God's word says we are the bride of Christ. Not possibly, but really, we together are the bride of Christ. That Christ is the head of the body. A real body, not a dismembered body. And that the chief cornerstone of the building that is the church is Christ. And I don't believe this is a pile of rubble all scattered about with Christ as the cornerstone. I believe it's a real, substantial building with four walls, a roof, doors, and windows. Now, how are we to walk this reality out? There's the rub. First, not perfectly. We won't walk it out perfectly. But patiently and with perseverance. There are two means by which... These are simple things, but (laughs) hard to do. Two means by which we can live in real and not ideal community. Forgiveness and gratitude. Forgiveness and gratitude. Forgiveness is underrated and underpracticed. 
gratitude is also underrated and underpracticed. But both forgiveness and gratitude find their roots. Find these roots. Where are they? They're in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Forgiveness and gratitude. I've taken all my time, more than my time. I apologize for my disorganized thoughts, but let me tell those of you who are registered users and perusers of Facebook, do everything for the glory of God, even Facebook can be a great tool of communication, leading to communion, all to the goal of building up the community of believers that live out this life for God's glory as a testimony to his kindness, his mercy, his affection, his forgiveness, and his outrageous grace toward us as his children, called by the Spirit, saved by the blood of his cross. That's what we're called to. And that's what these final greetings, I believe, are about. Heavenly Father, thank you for convicting me at least of what I need to be about in my communication with my faithful brothers and sisters in Christ and what I need to be about in my communion with them not holding back the deep struggle but revealing it so that I can even be comforted and I can build the kind of communion that you call me and us to build with each other that we might be the church community that images imperfectly to be sure but clearly images you I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.